Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It is a deep dilemma incorporating ethical, moral, religious, and obviously medical complexities when the issue of peri-viable birth is at hand. In this podcast, we're going to dive into this topic incorporating information from the ACOG Obstetric Care Consensus number 6, which was also done in union with the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine. Let's get to it now. It's helpful to start the podcast off with a quick definition of what peri-viable birth actually refers to. While numerous terms have been used to refer to newborns delivered near the limit of viability, whose outcomes range from certain or near-certain death to likely survival, but with a high likelihood of serious morbidities. Now, there was a recent executive summary released that dealt with the proceedings from a group workshop that had several professional societies. These included the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine, the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, the Section on Perinatal Pediatrics from the American Academy of Pediatrics, and of course, ACOG. Now, this panel of experts defined periviable birth as delivery occurring from 20 weeks and zero days to 25 weeks and six days. So that is the ACOG accepted definition of periviable birth. Now, it is true there's been great advances in the outcomes of children born in the limits of viability, but it remains true in the present day that delivery before 23 weeks of gestation typically results in neonatal death with a quoted survival rate of only about 5%. And among rare survivors, significant morbidity is the norm and is pretty close to universal. But we'll get into those specific numbers in just a moment. Now, let's take a look at what these numbers look like in general. Data published for newborns delivered in the U.S., England, and Australia within the past 10 years have indicated the following rates of survival to discharge. So here's what they look like starting at 23 weeks. Again, we're talking about the rates of survival to discharge. At 23 weeks, that percentage is 23 to 27%. And at 24 weeks of gestation, the percent of survival to discharge increases to 42 to 59 percent. And for births at 25 weeks of gestation, those that survive to discharge are 67 to 76 percent. These numbers are obviously helpful to counsel patients when they present with impending delivery at these limits of viability. Now, in 2017, a study described survival and neurological outcomes among more than 4,000 births from the years 2001 to 2011 and that were between 22 weeks and 24 weeks of gestation. This data came from 11 centers here in the United States. 
the authors reported that the rate of survival and survival without neurological impairment increased over this period, whereas the rate of survival with such impairment did not change. So this argues that the observed overall increase in survival was not simply a trade-off for life with significant impairment. However, for those that were born less than 23 weeks, the numbers are still not good. Among those born at 22 and 0 days to 22 weeks and 6 days, death rates were 97 to 98 percent, with just 1 percent surviving without some sort of neurodevelopmental impairment. Now, in contrast, from 2008 to 2011, at 24 weeks and 0 days to 24 weeks and 6 days, 55% of neonates survived and 32% survived without evidence of neurological impairment at 18 to 22 months of corrected age. So that is reassuring. Overall, these data led the authors to conclude that despite improvements over time, the incidence of death, neurodevelopmental impairment, and other adverse outcomes remains high. In considering all these outcome studies, it's also important to emphasize that although summary data often are grouped into segments of weeks, outcomes for deliveries at the extreme may be closer to those of the adjacent week than to those at the other extreme of the same week. In other words, outcomes at 23 weeks and 6 days may be more similar to those that are born at 24 weeks and 0 days than to those born at 23 weeks and 0 days. All right, we're going to get into the specifics on management dealing with periviable delivery in just a moment, including when is the earliest time to give steroids? When is the earliest, say, C-section can be performed for fetal protection? And what about antibiotics for preterm, pre-labor rupture of membranes? And what about mag sulfate? We'll get into those questions in just a little bit. But our next section will focus on patient counseling because that's the important issue when patients face this terrible dilemma. Because of the wide range of outcomes associated with periviable birth, counseling should attempt to include accurate information that is as individualized as possible regarding anticipated short-term and long-term outcomes. Nevertheless, it is important to realize that outcomes that have been reported in the medical literature may have some biases because of the variety of factors, including study inclusion, whether studies include all births or are limited to live-born infants, for example, and some reports only include non-anomalous newborns, so it's important to know the data carefully. Also, some reports have large variations in management between centers and changes in NICU practices over time. Birth weights and gestational age alone or in combination have been used as predictors of outcome and as criteria for offering resuscitation. Now here's an interesting clinical pearl. Matched for birth weight and gestational age, remember that female newborns tend to do better over males. Now, however, in recognition of the effect of other clinical factors and in an attempt to create a better prediction tool, the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development did develop a tool to estimate outcomes among live-born infants that are based on prospective collected information for live births between 22 and 25 weeks of gestation. This information came from 19 academic NICU 
centers. That tool, which again should just be used as a counseling tool, can actually be found online at neonatal.rti.org. That's neonatal.rti.org. Remember, when counseling patients, it's important to keep in mind the inherent inaccuracy of ultrasound estimates of fetal weight, which introduce a degree of uncertainty to the prediction of newborn outcomes. In addition, how parents weigh and value these potential outcomes, that is, like death, degree of neurodevelopmental impairment, can vary widely and individual values need to be incorporated into decision-making. Finally, the response of an individual neonate to resuscitation can never be known with certainty before delivery. So, when a specific estimated probability for an outcome is offered, it should be stated clearly that this is an estimate for a population and not a prediction of a certain outcome for a particular patient at a given institution. Now, what about delivery considerations? Now, remember, we said we're going to cover antepartum interventions like magnesium sulfate, antibiotics, and the use of steroids, but we'll talk about that in just a moment. But what about the issues at the moment of delivery? Well, remember that periviable infants do not survive without life-sustaining interventions immediately after birth. The circumstances prompting periviable births are, in many cases, like preeclampsia with severe features, also likely to require advanced care and resources to improve a woman's outcome. So, delivery of a pregnancy in the periviable period should occur at a center with both a level 3 to 4 NICU and a level 3 to 4 maternal care designation for labor and delivery or both. This can allow for immediate resuscitation with additional needed ancillary support when necessary. As in any pregnancy, obstetric interventions should be undertaken only after a discussion with the family regarding individual risks and benefits of management, in addition to alternative approaches. In order to facilitate informed decision-making, this discussion should include an unbiased presentation of data related to the chance of both survival and long-term neurodevelopmental impairment. This discussion, which can be difficult, also should present the option of no intervention. In light of the high likelihood of death and the significant degree of neurodevelopmental impairment that may result from periviable birth, the American Academy of Pediatrics has stated that parents should be given the choice for palliative care alongside the option to attempt resuscitation. Clinicians should recognize that parental goals of care may be oriented towards optimizing survival or minimizing pain and suffering and should formulate an antenatal plan of care in accordance with these parental goals. Rather than treat patients based upon algorithms organized solely by gestational age, a plan of care should be informed primarily by whether the goal is to optimize the chance of survival or minimize the likelihood of suffering. Now, now that we've covered that issue regarding delivery and counseling specifics, let's get into some issues regarding obstetrical antenatal interventions, which are based on gestational age. These include administration of magnesium sulfate for fetal neuroprotection, antenatal steroids, GBS coverage, antibiotics for preterm pre-labor rupture of membranes, and cesarean section. Let's do that after this quick break.
All right, remember, we're talking about antepartum interventions in the perivirable gestational age. Well, what about corticosteroid administration? Well, the ACOG and the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine have very clear statements regarding this. Corticosteroid administration before anticipated preterm birth is one of the most important antenatal therapies available to improve newborn outcome. Specific data on the use of steroids in the periviable period are supported by a combination of laboratory data in response of lung tissue and clinical observational studies. Data from the Eunice Kennedy Shriver Neonatal Research Network revealed a significant reduction in death and neurodevelopmental impairment at 18 to 22 months for infants who had been exposed to antenatal corticosteroids starting at 23 weeks of gestation. This obviously was also carried out at 24 weeks and 25 weeks. Now, at 22 weeks of gestation, now here's a clinical pearl, there was no significant differences in these outcome noted between those that received steroids and those that did not. In this large database, antenatal corticosteroid exposure also decreased the incidence of death, intraventricular hemorrhage, necrotizing enterocolitis, and even periventricular leukomalacia, but only in those infants born between 23 weeks and 25 weeks of gestation. All right, so here it is, quickly wrapped up. According to the consensus statement by ACOG and the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine, antenatal corticosteroids are not recommended between 20 and 22 weeks and 6 days, but may be considered at 23 weeks and 0 days. And antenatal corticosteroids are definitely recommended at greater than or equal to 24 weeks and 0 days. Now, what about tocolysis for preterm labor to allow these antenatal corticosteroids? Well, it follows the same pattern that was just stated for antenatal corticosteroids. Tocolysis is not recommended between 20 weeks and 0 days and 22 weeks and 6 days, but may be considered at 23 weeks and 0 to 23 weeks and 6 days. Tocolysis is recommended starting at 24 weeks and 0 days onward. Let's move on to magnesium sulfate for fetal neuroprotection. According to the consensus statement, mag sulfate for neuroprotection is not recommended between 20 weeks and 0 days and 22 weeks and 6, but may be considered at 23 weeks and 0 days and onward. Now, it is definitely recommended at 24 weeks and 0 days and above. And what about antibiotics to prolong latency during the expected management phase of preterm prelabor rupture of membranes? Well, this is where it gets a little grayer because ACOG does actually state that they can be considered as early as 20 weeks and zero days. That is the only intervention that is actually stated to be considered as early as 20 weeks and zero days. Remember that antibiotics to prolong latency are actually recommended at 24 weeks and zero and above. Regarding group B strep antibiotic prophylaxis, ACOG states that that is not recommended between 20 weeks and zero to 22 weeks and six days, but may be considered as early as 23 weeks and zero. GBS prophylaxis is recommended, however, starting at 24 weeks and zero days. 
Lastly, what about the issue of cesarean section as a way to improve neonatal outcomes in the periviable time frame? Well, ACOG states that C-section for fetal indication is not recommended between 20 weeks and 0 to 22 weeks and 6, but may be considered starting at 23 weeks and 0. And again, it is actually recommended by ACOG for fetal indication, but not until 25 weeks and 0 days. So remember... According to ACOG and SMFM, cesarean delivery for fetal indication is not recommended between 20 weeks and 0 to 22 and 6, but may be considered at 23 weeks and 0 all the way up to 24 and 6, but it is recommended at 25 weeks and 0 days and above. Now, randomized controlled trials comparing cesarean delivery with vaginal delivery have not been done in the periviable period. Although limited retrospective data provide some support for C-section in the presence of malpresentation, delivery for women in the periviable period must be individualized, recognizing increased maternal morbidity associated with C-section particularly if there's a need for a classical cesarean birth. Now, according to the college, cesarean delivery before 22 weeks of gestation is appropriate only for severe maternal indications like persistent bleeding of a previa or uterine rupture. Personally, as an OBGYN physician, I've been there many times. Dealing with this issue of periviable birth never gets easier. And I have to tell you that guidelines are great and provide good information. But there's something about individualized case-by-case care when there's something as devastating as a delivery in this time frame. In this podcast, we've summarized the ACOG consensus statement, which is number six, which is the joint statement from ACOG and the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Thanks for being a part of our family, and we'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.